Welcome to Episode 6 of the Believe and Follow Podcast. I'm your host, James Rattazzi. In the first episode of this podcast, I posed three questions to various people. The third question was about the variety of religious teaching we find in the world today, and if this is pleasing to God. You know that there's a variety, we can see, of religious practices in the world. Do you think God is pleased with that? I think to the, the extent that having different practices prevents people from understanding what he really wants from, wants from them and, um, and who he really is, I think he is not pleased. There's a great deal of division in religious teaching. Does that please God? I don't think so. Jesus expressed wishes for us to have unity, the same as he has with God the Father, and so that's one of his desires for us, and I think that if we were united in our beliefs and our practices, and that we would be united in our beliefs and our practices if we're doing what God wants, um, if we're all really truly trying to do what God wants, then eventually we would come to the same beliefs and the same actions. And the closer that we get to a proper understanding, and the more that we yearn to be pleasing to Him, it will bring us closer to doing things the same. And I think that is what God wants. There's a great deal of division in religious practices. Does this please God? That would have to be a no for sure because, you know, the God of the Bible says that he makes it obvious, even just by creation, that he is who he is. And all these other things, all these other religions, I believe, are attempts to follow self, to follow man. You know, different different men, different people mm-hmm. that came up with these religions. But a, a yearning, a feeling that there is a God, you know, they feel that in themselves, I guess. But not they haven't come to the, the decision that or the realization that the God of the Bible is the true God and all other ones are just uh, really you know images of themselves of what they want to happen 
we see in the world a variety of religious teachings. Do you think this pleases God? And in that sense, God, he, um, he knew that it was going to happen. And he, right. knew that, he knew that we was going to have differences. What pleases him is for us to uh, seek for truth. There's um, much division in religious teaching. Does this please God? If I was going with that idea of God as a being like a human, I would say yes, he does like the division. Okay. Does he like the more negative aspects that are the result of the division, like violence upon human beings with the, to each other? I would say no. There's a great deal of division in religious teaching. Do you think that pleases God? No, definitely not. Okay. Absolutely not, no. Definitely does not please him. It hurts him, if anything. Do you think all the division in religious teaching pleases God? I don't think he cares. Those were excerpts from the much longer responses found in the first episode. So now we turn to scripture for the answer to this question. And remember, the nice thing about a podcast is you can pause it and check the scripture references to make sure I am using them properly. If not, let me know. I'm here to be corrected. Better now than on the day of judgment. You can email me at james at believeandfollow.org. I'll try to summarize as briefly as I can some of the points we made from Scripture in previous episodes. When Jesus came in the flesh, he showed us what one with the Father looks like. And so Jesus taught only what came from the Father. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, Jesus responded to the Jews who marveled that such teaching was coming from an unschooled individual by saying in John chapter 7, verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. He went on to say, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. That's verse 18 of John chapter 7. Jesus also went on to say in chapter 8, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. That's John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Later in his ministry, Jesus promised his disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit continued in the same pattern. John 16, 13 says, He won't speak on his own authority, but only what he hears. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. They have unity. Unity of mind, unity of purpose, unity of judgment. This is what is being said in places such as Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is 
1. And so the apostles followed through in the same pattern. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The way we might say this today is, so what I'm telling you came from God. The apostle goes on to say, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's chapter 14, verse 37 of 1 Corinthians. Any disciple of Jesus Christ should also do the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Therefore, when we teach, we should, like Jesus, be able to say, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone brings any teaching to us, we should test it by the same rule. Acts 17.11 commends the Bereans for searching the scriptures daily to see if the things they were being told are true. The Apostle Paul also reminds the church at Corinth, as he is correcting them for having division, that his teaching is the same in every church. He says in chapter 4, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. The Apostle Paul urged the church at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Then in the following verses, he tells them how to do that. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4. So how do we keep the unity of the Spirit? Noting the division in the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Mind means thinking or patterns of thought. For example, the mind of the liberal, the mind of the conservative. Judgment is the conclusions we make or actions we take concerning specific issues. But what mind are we to be united in? Note in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. The way of thinking that Christ demonstrated is what we should be drawing our judgments from, thus keeping the unity of the Spirit. If we are being careful to follow this pattern, if we are being careful to walk worthy of the calling, then we won't 
be adding to or taking away from the instructions from God that Jesus relayed through his apostles. Back to the discussion of division, the Apostle Paul said, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Okay, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Also, John says... Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That's 2 John 9. Going on ahead is not walking worthy of the calling. In order to accomplish this, Each of us must know with certainty exactly what comes from the Father. Jesus knew because he came from the Father. We went over the scene recounted in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, where the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus why his disciples did not follow the tradition of the elders concerning hand-washing. Jesus uses this opportunity to strongly rebuke these well-respected religious leaders. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Both of these practices mentioned by Jesus here at first blush, have an appearance of holiness, but are not, because they are from man and not God. Jesus warns against giving the traditions of men equal weight to the instruction from God. Jesus strongly cautions that the end result of this process is to let go of the command of God in order to hold to the traditions of men, thus driving out and nullifying the command from God. This has been the major problem of every church that I have ever been a member of. In support of this bold assertion, let me give you a little bit of biographical background information. Bear with me on this. I think it will be helpful in order to communicate the full impact of this very important message. As a mere child in Brooklyn, I was introduced to this concept in a somewhat jarring fashion. My parents considered themselves Catholics and sent me to Catholic school. 
When I hit the second grade, it was time for everyone in that grade to receive their first Holy Communion, according to tradition. And the class began to rehearse the Latin Mass so we could memorize our parts for the various call and response sequences. These were all in Latin, of course, and we were not told what any of it meant. This puzzled me a bit, but after a brief conversation with my mother, I reasoned that if God says recite in Latin, you recite in Latin. Right in the middle of this preparation, Vatican II, a conference convened to revise church practices, comes out with some updated rules. A determination had been made that it was no longer necessary for this Mass to be in Latin. So the Latin missals that had been issued to us earlier in the school year were collected up, and we were issued missals in the English language. At first I was pleased because now I could understand what we were reciting. But the question popped into my head, did I miss the news story where God came down and announced that we could do this Mass in English? Once again I queried my mother and she dismissed me with this statement, we do what we do because it says it in the Bible. We did have a couple of Bibles laying around the house, so I took a look and was unable to find the answer I was looking for. Remember, I'm just seven years old at this time. So I decided to ask the father in charge of the parish the next time we were presented to him all lined up in our uniforms. I asked the father, Please tell me where in the Bible does God command the Mass be said in Latin? I wasn't trying to be a wise guy. I was being quite naive and innocent and perhaps a little stupid at this moment. I just wanted to understand the proposition being set before me. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. The father answered me quite sternly. He said, you don't read the Bible. We read the Bible and tell you what it says. I just stood there silently as the line moved on. I was hurt and shocked, but I didn't cry, just stood there. Finally, a nun scooted me away, and as she did, she bent down and said to me, you're asking the right questions. Fast forward now 20 years to 1984. I am a music minister, still in the Catholic Church, still struggling with my concerns. I hear on NPR that a new modern English translation of the Bible had just come out, and I instruct my brother, who was working in a bookstore at the time, to get me a copy. My plan was to read the Bible from cover to cover, and then find myself a Bible study and get to the bottom of these nagging concerns. By the time I finished with this first complete read-through of the Bible, I was living in upstate New York, and so I decided to ask the father in charge of the parish if we could start up a Bible study. He said no in a private conversation that chilled me to my very bone. Please note, in 20 years, I still hadn't learned my lesson. Fortunately, I noticed on the bulletin board at the local supermarket an announcement for a Bible study with a number to call. So I began a Bible study with a group led by a Church of Christ preacher transplanted from Alabama. 
As a result of that study, I understood that I needed to be baptized. And so I left the Catholic Church and joined with believers meeting for worship in the town where I was living. Now here's the point. When I left the Catholic Church back in the late 80s, I realized that I was leaving a church that has a more than 1,000 year history of tradition from man being substituted for the pure word of God and joining a church, Church of Christ, with a more than 100 year history of the same thing. I knew this because when I began studying with the Church of Christ, I had already read the entire Bible, and so I was able to take note of anything I was being told and compare it to the entire Word of God. What I was now being taught was much closer to what I had read than what the Catholic Church had been teaching, so I made the necessary change. Fast forward now another 20 years, more or less. In the interim, I had returned to New York City and in 2006 joined with Believers Meeting for Worship there. I already had a short list of teachings common to many churches of Christ that were from man and not God. I did not have any specific plans to address any of these issues. As they came up during the course of study, I mentioned my concerns and so the church was aware of my understanding of scripture. But periodically over the years, I was asked by some coming into the church about a particular practice the church was regularly engaged in. I would explain that this practice comes not from scripture but from man, and I would mention to the church leadership that the issue had been raised in conversation. I was always told it was best not to make any changes for various reasons at various times over the years. No attempt was made to justify the practice from scripture. I agreed purely for the sake of unity. During those years, the church leadership was in violation of the instruction we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. By brushing aside my concerns and the concerns of all those members who expressed themselves to me, we were not working toward being united in the same mind and judgment. This is very clear. But in December of 2013, the issue was once again raised to me by yet another member of the church, and I decided for myself that I was no longer comfortable with informing people that we were holding to this particular departure from the faith. I did my best to have my concerns addressed, but in 2014 the issue came to a head with yet another episode of intense humiliation. Please note, 50 years now and apparently I still haven't learned my lesson. And what is that lesson? Let's close this biographical section and get back to the topic we were discussing. Back in Mark chapter 7, why did Jesus call the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites? The word hypocrite, according to Webster's Dictionary, means a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. The implied message of religion always is, this is what God told us to do, or we are doing these things to please God. 
man-made tradition gets in the way of this. Jesus makes that very clear here. Now, traditions will naturally develop as we, week in and week out, year in and year out, practice our religion. As we are making a habit of following God's instruction, certain aspects of our routine will be peculiar to our particular local church. Over time, these habits will become codified and more entrenched. If we are not careful, if we are not constantly making sure for ourselves and anyone paying attention to what we're doing, exactly what is from God, then traditions from man will multiply and crowd out and nullify the pure word of God. Jesus makes a point of sternly warning us about this very thing. It's no accident that this was a spiritual condition of the nation of Israel when Jesus came. The religious leaders for many years failed to clearly distinguish what was from God and what was from man, and rather than take correction from Jesus, they sought to kill him. These things were written for our learning. This is exactly what happens in the churches today. And the reaction is the same from the so respectable religious hypocrites today that Jesus got way back when. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about it. I understand why this is the response. This is a very unpopular message to anyone that belongs to a church. We all want to think we are walking in the truth, but we are so easily blinded by the traditions of men that we have known all our lives. These traditions seem right to us, and so we need to be strongly prodded to see and accept the truth. This is a huge problem. Like I said, present in every church that I have been a member of. And so if someone comes to you and suggests that this is what you are doing, give it careful consideration, no matter how offensive you may find the suggestion. Examine the word of God to see if this is what you are doing. This process should result in everyone being united in the same mind and judgment. If not, more work needs to be done. But be careful to do this peaceably, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Apostle Paul warned, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's Galatians 6, verse 1. We should all be working together to become one. And so, getting back to the original question that we posed in the beginning, do you think God is pleased with all the religious division? We can see from the reaction of Jesus that God is not pleased with all the division in religious teaching that's caused by people abandoning the instruction from God and turning instead to rules made by men. If men are making things up, you're going to be following different things depending on which man you're listening to. 
if we were all following the instructions that we find in Scripture to be united in the same mind and the same judgment, then there will not be this wide variety of religious practice, and we will be more pleasing to God. So let me hear some reaction to this lesson, either in support or criticism. That's all for now. Till next time, goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine. So